marriage. So let's pray and then we'll begin our study. Father, we thank you for the time to be together today, Lord, to gather with your people, Lord, to study your word, and Lord, we thank you for the life that you've given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord, and Lord, how it is that you sustain us, Lord, every week and every day uh, through your word that has been given to us for our salvation and for our life. Lord, we want our mind to be conformed to your mind. Lord, we want to think clearly, Lord, concerning everything, and Lord, especially today as we study this topic of marriage. Lord, we know that there are many false ideas, Lord, many false practices that are being promoted as good uh, within our culture, Lord, that you declare to be evil. And so, Lord, we don't want to embrace those things, but we want to believe what your word says. And, Lord, we want our thoughts to be the thoughts of Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us his mind, Lord, on this, and that you would establish our homes, our marriages, Lord, that they would be uh, based upon your word and that they would be glorifying to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 25, and we are on paragraph 2. We're talking about marriage. Marriage in paragraph 2 lays out what is the purpose of marriage, right? What is the purpose? What are the purposes of marriage? And there it says, Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring, and for the prevention of immorality. So here, three reasons for God ordaining marriage as a part of the world, the order in which God has established. And the Bible does expect that what will be commonly practiced amongst most people, the majority of people, is that they will marry, that they will marry, that they will have children, that they will establish families, right? Though the apostle does say in 1 Corinthians that it's better if one doesn't marry for the sake of ministry, he also knows and understands that this is not going to be common. But what will typically be the case is that Uh, young men will marry young women and that they will establish a home, have children, and raise a family, and that this is a part of the way God has created and ordered this present world, right? So it is necessary for this for the mutual help of husband and wife, right? There are certain things that men are good at, and there are certain things that women are good at, and there are certain things men are not good at, and there are certain things that women are not good at. And this is why you have a husband and a wife, a husband and a wife, because when the two come together, then they complement each other. There is mutual help to the husband. What he is lacking in, the wife makes up, and then what she is lacking in, the husband makes up. So it is a benefit for everyone, and it's beneficial to the children, right, to the children. And we know this. Even secularists, even unbelievers who study these issues will tell you that the homes that are best for children to be raised in, right? the homes that typically produce law-abiding citizens, people who are prosperous, people who do well in society and in the world, are homes with a father and a mother. And the best are the father and mother is the father and mother of the children, right? Their own father and their own mother, and that this is what is best for children and the raising of a family and producing people who are law-abiding, productive citizens in the world. A husband and a wife, a mother and a father, right there in one home. And this is because this is how God created the world. God is the one who has ordained marriage for the mutual help of both the husband and wife. 
Also, they say, for the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring. With legitimate offspring. Right? Because this world is under the curse of sin, all of this was anticipated by God, then there is the need for there to be another generation to rise up and supplant the previous generation. Because one generation will come and they will die, and if they don't have children, then who's going to populate the earth? How is the earth going to be subdued, populated, if people are not having children? So it's necessary for there to be children for the repopulation of the earth generation after generation. So it's for the increase of humanity. And this is why when Jesus is asked, when the, the, uh, his critics come to him and ask uh, this, present this scenario of a woman marrying a man and he dies without children and then he marries the brother and the brother and the brother and the brother and they ask him whose wife will she be in the kingdom of God in the in the life to come and he tells them that they don't know the power of God or the scriptures because in the life to come we'll be like the angels in that we won't be given to marriage because there won't be the need for reproducing offspring in the life to come because we will be immortal. We won't die, and it will be a fixed number. There won't be the having of children in the life to come. But in this life, God has established that we do have children and that we raise our children in the fear of the Lord as Christians and that when we die, then they are there and they have children. And so the world continues, the human race continues generation after generation after generation through the bearing of legitimate offspring. Legitimate, right? Meaning within the confines of marriage. Not illegitimate offspring, which are those that are born out of wedlock. And that is not what should be happening in the Christian church or in Christian homes. But rather, we should be having children within wedlock, right? Because then they are legitimate children and not illegitimate. And also, he says, they say, for the prevention of immorality. Because of sin and because of the desire for uh, relations, then it is necessary for men and women to have a lawful, God-honoring outlet for those desires, right? We all know and understand that the desires for uh, relations or copulation, that these are very strong desires within men and within women. And there needs to be a proper outlet for those things, and the proper outlet is marriage. This is why delaying marriage can be such a dangerous thing, right? That whenever a person is, finds a suitable spouse, a suitable mate, then it's better for them to marry quickly and not delay it four, five, six years because of temptation to sin, right? If you find someone and they're godly and you're compatible, then just get married to them, right? Get married to them. And if you have to live in poverty for a little bit, that's fine. Better to live poor and not commit immorality than to say, well, we're going to save up this much money so that we don't ever have to live poor and be committing sin. No way. We can't do that. So we need it for the prevention of immorality. And this is part of the problem of what's happening in our own culture is marriage has been pushed off and delayed for so many years because you got to go to college first, and then now you got to get a master's degree so that you can get a good job before you can get married. But do those desires start when you're 25, 26, 27 years of age? No, they don't. They start much, much earlier. And many people, especially young people, they don't have self-control. There's not very many Josephs in the world who were able to say no as that righteous young man was. And so we're, we're teaching or we're uh, putting our children in a 
situation to fail because they're being taught to delay marriage for many, many years, and all the while they're raging with lust, and they're not able to control, practice self-control. So we need to encourage marriage. We need to encourage marriage you know, when people are responsible, but they need to be responsible, right? We need to train them up so that they're not irresponsible when they're in their 20s or 30s. Who wants a 30-year-old living in their basement? No way. No, that's not what we want. We want responsible children who are able to go out, get a job, work, provide for themselves, right? Manage their own household, manage their accounts, where they're not having to be uh, led by the hand in all of these things so that they're able to have a wife or have a husband, have children, raise those children, and this for the prevention of immorality so that there's not sin being committed. Okay, the scriptures. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So here, God himself is the one. And this is before sin entered into the world. So in the perfect creation, God is the one who intentionally created the man first without the wife in order to show and to manifest that it's not good for the man to be alone but that he needs a helper who is fit for him. And who is the one that provides the helper fit for him? God is the one who does that. So God is the one who created the woman or the wife for the man or the husband. He is the one that provided that. So to demean or look down upon marriage in any way, right? to criticize or to uh, have this negative, sour attitude of husbands toward wives or wives toward husbands is to demean the good gift that God has given, right? For a husband to have a sour attitude toward his wife is to demean what God has said himself is good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Now, again, it's better if the wife is a godly wife, right? If she is actually a help to him, if she's not a hindrance to his godliness. But even in the case where the marriages are not uh, perfect, or they're, they're, which no marriage is perfect because we have imperfect people. But even in the case where the marriage is not ideal, there still is some benefit of the wife to the husband and of the husband to the wife. But ideally, we want it to be very beneficial by doing what God has called us to do. So God himself is the one who declares that it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helper. So Adam does not have in himself everything that he needs to live life the way that God has called him to do, right? He doesn't have that. How can he have children by himself, right? It's impossible. Now, don't tell the liberals up in Harvard and Yale these things because they'll say that we're crazy and psychotic, but men cannot have children. Did you know that? They, it takes a man and a woman to have a child. So he can't have children. And then also, again, there are things that women do better than men. Women are typically more gracious, more hospitable, right? They're, they're more tender and compassionate toward the children, right? Men are uh, more uh, direct in what they're doing, right? They're more focused on those types of things. They're the ones that are providing. They're the ones that are to be teaching the, the young boys how to be productive, how to work, how to do those types of things. Well, you need both of them. You need both of them in the home in order for everything to go together well. So this is why... 
it is not good, and God is the one that provides the wife for the husband. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. So there it's for the help, the mutual help of husband and wife. Then also here, Genesis 1 verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here, God is the one who created man in his image, in his likeness. And he declares that man, mankind, is going to have dominion over all of the earth, right? The fish, the birds, the livestock, everything that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So there it's defining the unity of man. But then also, male and female, he created them. So we all come from one source, Adam, who was created in the likeness of God, but then God created mankind as both male and female, and both are created in his likeness. So here in Genesis 1 and 2, you have established both the equality of men and women before God. Right? Both men and women are created in the likeness of God. So in terms of their creation, in terms of image of God, the men are not more image of God and the women less image of God. Both are equally created in the image of God. Both of them are worthy of redemption. Both of them will inherit the kingdom of God together. And in terms of inheritance in the kingdom of God, there's neither male nor female. There's no distinction between men and women. Believing men and believing women will go to the same heaven. And the men won't have a higher rank in heaven than the women. Right? They'll both be there. But in terms of our roles in this present world, there are men and there are women. There are things that men are called to do, to lead, to protect, to provide, right? This is what they are to do. And then there are things that the women are supposed to do to, to be under the authority and submission of the husband, to nurture, to care for, to make the, the home a place of hospitality and a place that is orderly and thriving for the children to grow in. And in this way, everyone is working together to do what they have been called to do. So in terms of roles, the men have the authority, the men have a greater rank, and the women are under the men, but in terms of their equality or their value, both are created in the image of God. So both things are true. They're equal in terms of value, but they are unequal in terms of their rank or the roles that God has prescribed one for the other. And then here in verse 28, he commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So this is what they're called to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And this after marriage, not before marriage, after marriage, they are to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and then have dominion over it. Okay, and then also anyone today who teaches against children, as is being taught uh, in our culture today, the, the value of children, the blessing of children, is contrary to Scripture. And it's violating the first commandment, one of the first commandments that God gives, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is what we should be teaching and what we should be 
holding to, though in the Western world today, Western countries, the children, the number of children that people are having, that families have, has been declining generation after generation. So that in many countries, many Western countries, there's not enough children to even replace the population. They don't have the ability to even repopulate the present generation because they're having so few children within the society. And this is a problem, right? It's not good. It's not good for that culture, for that society, for that to be the case. So we need to promote families, promote children, promote having many children, right? That this is all good and it comes from God. To be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Okay, then lastly, for the prevention of immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We know that the desire for uh, men for women and women for men to be married and to have uh, proper relations within marriage, that this desire uh, is certainly very strong, right? We all know that. The desire for uh, lust, lust is that desire uh, not being uh, practiced under self-control, where it's raging within a person. Uh, But the desire for a man to be married and to have a wife and then to be able to have proper relations with her and vice versa, that that desire comes from God and it's a strong desire so that there will be the having of children, right? The repopulation and the spreading of the human race. But that desire, because sin is entered into the world, right? What, does, what happens to everything? It's all corrupted, right? It's all corrupted. It's been polluted. And now this good desire that God gives of men for women and women for men has been corrupted and it rages. And in many cases, it's out of control. People burn with lust. And if you burn with lust, you're going to burn in hell, right? You're going to burn in hell. So what is then the proper outlet for this desire? And that is marriage. To get married, and then you have your wife, you have your husband, and you can have the normal, natural relations between a husband and wife. And it's not a sin against God, but instead it's pleasing to God, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 teaches this. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Right? So here he's establishing this truth. Right? Yes, it is good, understood properly, for a man not to have relations with a woman right? if it's for the right reasons. Right? If it's for the right reasons. However, he knows as well that with this desire is going to come a great temptation. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Right? There is the desire for immorality. And because of this desire, then it's not good for a man not to have relations with a woman if it's his wife. Then he needs to so that he's not tempted to commit immorality. Right? This is the outlet that's going to preserve and keep him from committing sin against God is when he has relations with his own wife. Now, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So the husband should not deny his wife her conjugal rights. That There are certain rights the wife has over the husband and if the wife desires the husband to fulfill his conjugal rights, 
he should not deny her. Even if he says, well, I, I want to pray to God, right? I want to, to focus on spiritual things. No, you don't have that right because your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. And if she desires this, then you need to give her her right so that she doesn't fall into sexual immorality. And then likewise, also, the wife to her husband. The wife should give to the husband the conjugal rights. So if the husband desires the right, then the wife should not deny him, right? even for some reason that might seem legitimate. No, she should not deny his right. Now, why? For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Right? Now, again, he doesn't mean that ultimate authority. The ultimate authority lies in God. But when there is marriage, the wife does have, because the two are one, there is an authority that she has over her husband in terms of conjugal rights, and there is an authority the husband has over his wife in terms of conjugal rights. So the wife can't think only of herself, and the husband can't think only of himself, but rather he has to think of his wife, what's good for her, and she has to think of her husband and what is good for him. And is it good for your husband to commit sexual immorality? Is it good for your wife to commit sexual immorality? No. Then give them their right so that they don't commit immorality. Right? That's the point he's making here. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. So don't deprive one another of regular marital relations, except perhaps, right? Except perhaps. So he's not even saying this all the time, but this would be the one legitimate reason to not do these things. Notice he doesn't say, except perhaps if you're not in the mood, except perhaps if you don't feel like it. He doesn't say that. He says, except perhaps if what? If it's for a limited time, so a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. And it has to be by what? Agreement. Husband and wife in agreement together. Not the wife saying, I'm going to pray, therefore I'm not giving you your rights. And not the husband saying, I'm going to devote myself to prayer, therefore I'm not giving you your rights. No, you don't have authority over your own body. You, she, you don't have authority, wife, over your own body. Neither one does. So it has to be mutual, right? Because you belong to one another. So you can't just do whatever you want to do. That's the point he's making here. So a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. That would be a good reason to do it because you want to fast, you want to pray, you don't want to focus on earthly, physical things. You want to be focused on spiritual things and the husband and wife are in agreement over this. So they agree that we're going to focus on these spiritual things and not on these physical things for a period of time, for this amount of time. But then he says, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right Now, we might say, well, isn't it good to have self-control? Well, of course it's good to have self-control. But should we needlessly put ourselves in situations where we're not going to be able to exercise self-control? No. Right? Isn't it foolish to play with fire? And that's what he's saying here. Yes, exercise self-control. Right? You can't be doing this all the time. Right? There are going to be times when you can't. Certainly, there's a time every month that you cannot because it's forbidden by God when there's the normal cycles that take place in the woman. 
So you can't then, so you have to exercise self-control. But at times when you don't, and it's unnecessary, then you shouldn't be exercising self-control. You should be doing what is natural and normal, right, within the marriage uh, relationship. Okay, so that's the teaching there. Also, uh, verse 9. Well, we'll just keep reading. Verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Right? Here, a concession, not a command. So this is optional. Optional. This would be a situation where one person may do one thing and another person may do another. Similar to Romans chapter 14. One person eats meat and the other person doesn't. He eats only vegetables. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all day alike. All days alike. Okay, in that case, you do this, you do this, and that's fine. Here's another one. One person gets married and the other person doesn't get married. Well, if the one not getting married is doing it for the right reasons, as the Apostle Paul is, then it's glorifying to God. But if the one getting married is doing it for the right reasons, according to what the Apostle says, then they're both glorifying God. So even though what they're doing is contrary, one's getting married and the other's not getting married, they're both glorifying God. Now, this isn't commonly the case. Most of the time, when one's doing one and the other's doing another, the opposite, one is committing sin and one is in righteousness, right? The one doesn't commit adultery and the other one does commit adultery. The one doesn't murder and the other one does commit murder. Well, those are contrary, but one's committing sin and the other one's not. Here, they're contrary, but in this case... One is, committing, one is not committing sin, and the other is not committing sin. They're both doing what God has called them to do. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So, to the unmarried and widows, remain single if God gives you the gift, as he did the Apostle Paul, for the sake of ministry, But this is not common, right? But for most, because they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To burn. To burn in this life, and then to burn in the life to come, right? That's what we do not want. Then one last passage would be 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And verse 11, this would be an example of why most of the time young widows will need to get remarried and the unmarried will need to get married. 1 Timothy 5.11 says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Right, Because they said... I'm going to devote myself to God. I'm going to devote myself to the service of the Lord. But they did this not realizing what they were committing themselves to. And now a little bit of time has gone by. Their zeal has dried up and now they want to get married. So they're going to abandon their former faith, their former oath. Besides this, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So not only do they, uh, they're not faithful, they're not doing what they said they were going to do, they're also not living a godly life, right? Instead of being busy working at home, right, managing the home, raising the children, right, whenever those, you have the little ones at home, 
The women don't have time to go from house to house, sit around, gossip, be busybodies, right? Do those kinds of things. No, no, but these women, they're not marrying. They have no responsibilities at home. So they just are going around talking all the time. They're idle. They're going house to house. They're gossiping. They're busybodies, right? They're always involved in everyone's business, putting their nose in there, doing things that they should not do. So what is his solution? So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So his solution is younger widows need to remarry. They need to have children, manage their households, and give the enemy no occasion to slander. Because now they're going to be busy at home instead of busy bodies. Now now that would be those who cannot practice self-control. There are a few exceptions of younger widows who did not remarry, but who did practice self-control, and the clearest would be Anna. Anna, uh, in Luke chapter 2, or that she was a widow uh, for many, many years, but she did not depart from the t- temple. She was there night and day with fasting and prayers. So she was not going from house to house, being a busybody, and she wasn't idle, but she was devoted to spiritual things. So if there's one that can do that, w- whether man or woman, then let them do that. But the majority of the time, that's not going to be the case. We need to practice what the Bible teaches concerning marriage and that it is a benefit to keep us from immorality and to fill our life with the good busyness that we need to be doing, which is raising our families and managing our own households well. Okay, well, we'll stop there today because we are going to do the Lord's Supper. And then we'll finish the chapter on marriage uh, next, uh, next week. Also... We're coming up pretty soon on a chapter on the Lord's Supper. It will be a couple of uh, chapters away in baptism. And so I would encourage you to read ahead on those. And specifically, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, think about what are the ways that these were practiced, right? How was it instituted? How was it practiced uh, according to Christ when he instituted it with his disciples? How were they practicing it? Uh, Were they immersing in terms of baptism? Were they sprinkling? Was it adults? Was it children? Because there is disagreement there. And then also in terms of the Lord's Supper. How were they, how was it instituted? How were they practicing those things? Because I want us to think about that to make sure that when we're practicing these things, we're conforming as much as we possibly can to what the practice was in Scripture. So think about those things. We'll talk about those things, and then we'll anticipate as we move toward that and look and examine our own practices to make sure that what we are doing conforms and is consistent to the Word of God. Let's pray, and then after that, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you again for the time to be together today, Lord, and for your many blessings that you've given to us. Lord, you are truly good, Lord, to your children. Lord, you are good in that you have blessed us, Lord, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, you have given to us your only Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, to be our head, Lord, to be our husband, Lord, to be the sacrifice that was given for our sins. And Lord, he has uh, died on the cross for us, and he has been raised for our justification. Lord, we know that we have no hope anywhere else but only in Christ. And Lord, we pray that today as we take this Lord's Supper, 
But Lord, that we would see within these elements, Lord, what Christ has done for us. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That our sins were placed upon him and he bore the wrath of God there on the cross. Lord, taking the shame and taking the punishment that we deserved. Lord, as well, that we would see in, in the cup the blood of Christ. The blood that was shed for us. Lord, the blood that cleanses us from all of our sin. That that was the payment you required. That the life is in the blood. And that he shed his blood in order to purchase our life. So Lord, we thank you for Christ and we pray that, Lord, we would see him today. Lord, that we would see him by faith in these elements. And that we would remember that everything we have in terms of our spiritual salvation is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, teach us these things today. Lord, as we take this Lord's Supper, and Lord, we pray that it would be glorifying to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.